Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 243. Before we dive into our guest today, I wanted to thank Levi Hansen for the podcast review. Levi, send us your shipping address to podcast at exomountaingear.com, and we will get you set up with some Exo Mountain Gear and Hunt Back Country podcast swag. And listeners, if you want to enter these giveaways, it's really simple. We just want to hear from you. You can leave a review in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you may be listening to this podcast, or you can also contact us directly by email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Today's guest is Joseph Von Benedict. He was a previous guest on episode number 69, and at that time we were doing a series called Building a Backcountry Rifle. We specifically spoke with Joseph as part of that series when it came to cartridge selection. So understanding the pros and cons of different cartridges and calibers for backcountry hunting specifically. Recently, Steve and I were talking informally offline about upcoming hunts that we had this fall. Steve has his first sheep hunts. Steve and I both will be hunting elk with a rifle for the first time later this fall as well. And so Steve and I were just discussing bullet options and things like that, and we thought, I mean, we should really ask Joseph some of these questions. And at first we were planning on doing that offline, but then we figured, well, why wouldn't we just want to talk to Joseph again on the podcast and ask him those questions and let you guys listen in. And so this episode is just that. It was some personal, selfish questions that Steve and I had for Joseph, but I'm sure that may apply to you as well. We talk about bullet selection, shooting from field positions, and much, much more. We cover things like specific bullet choices, pros and cons of cartridges that Steve and I happen to be shooting, and really get into even shot placement and some of those factors. So if you hunt with a rifle at all, there's something in here for you. Obviously, given the time of year as it is August right now, many of us are gearing up to bow hunt first, but I wanted to get this episode out here now because rifle hunters are generally going to have a little bit more time to maybe make a change in their bullet selection or something for this fall. So hope you guys enjoy this one. Thank you as always for tuning in. We truly would love to hear from you, your suggestions, your feedback, how your hunts go, anything like that. Shoot us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. All right, let's get into this one with Joseph Von Benedict. podcast thanks for joining us this morning well thank you it's a pleasure to be back on the show yeah we uh you were a guest back in 2017 episode 69 we talked with you about cartridge selection uh, at that time steve and i and through the podcast we were doing a series of episodes called building a backcountry rifle and so we were looking at everything from the rifle itself to optics and cartridge selection and bullet selection. And you were one of the guests in that series, and we thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you then. And Steve and I were, name came up, and we thought it'd be fun to get you back on the show and chat. Um, just a quick introduction from you, Joseph, and maybe, uh, A, let listeners know who you are in general, and then, B, what's what's changed for you in the last three years? What's an update from you? Oh, gosh. Lots been going on. So, Joseph Von Benedict, I write full-time for various shooting and hunting magazines for a, a living. I also uh, hunt, jeez, uh, I also host the Backcountry Hunting Podcast, which uh, we try and 
educate, inspire, and inform, but because of my love of firearms and ballistics and all things about cartridges, it tends to be pretty heavy on technical shooting stuff. And uh, love hunting the backcountry, hunt wherever I can, whenever I can. Currently, I just moved my family from central Utah up to the eastern, uh, southeastern corner of Idaho. And uh, going through the agony of building a home, but uh, loving the process as well. We're outside of town, in the country, it's beautiful, and we're really looking forward to living there. Yeah, that's neat. What's the, this is a just a wide open take this anywhere question, Joseph. I'm just curious for you personally. You, you've been in the industry a while, as you said, as a writer. I know you've had a history guiding, and as you mentioned, your passion for uh, firearms, ballistics, cartridges, all that. It seems like there's always something new, um, especially in the last five years. There's been so many developments um, from that side of the industry, from firearms and cartridges and new bullets. I mean, it's just there's always something new. What's what's something personally that you are excited about or have been excited about, you know, something newer that you've seen hit the industry that really kind of piques your interest or just has you excited? Sure. Well, I think the main thing that just leaps to mind is the new generation of uh, ultra lightweight mountain type uh, precision hunting rifles now the two of those things didn't used to go together very well an ultralight rifle was hard to make really accurate uh you know, the makers used pencil thin barrels and so forth and you might get two shots that were really accurate but by the third that barrel's heating and shots are going astray well, I think the um, the generation of precision rifles that's developed to meet the needs of PRS shooters today has bled over into the hunting scene and maybe was kicked off really by some of the big companies such as Gunworks and Proof Research that started developing barrels that could hold up to a lot of heat and still maintain pinpoint precision add in carbon fiber stocks, titanium actions, and so forth, and pretty soon you have a 5.5 or 6-pound rifle that will shoot 10-shot groups under an inch. And the best of the breed, you'll shoot 10-shot groups with a you know a good handload that are pushing half MOA accuracy if you're the shooter to hold yourself together that long, right? It's much more difficult mm-hmm. to shoot one of these ultralight precision rifles, and it is a big heavy one that's inherently stable. But it's been a big thing the last year or two. Even companies like Savage are getting on board and producing sub-six-pound precision hunting rifles. Being a mountain hunter and bona fide middle age now, that's really intriguing to me because I love accurate rifles and I love light rifles. And now you can have both. It's fantastic. Yeah, no, that's what, exciting. Uh, so I I built this rifle <clears throat> and that we're talking about. <laughs> uh, sub six pounds, six five PRC, and I really I am not technically a good shooter, and I struggled to just shoot accurate, consistent groups with it. What's like top three things that come to mind on like how to shoot a light rifle better? Hmm. Well, uh, become a disciple of foundationally correct shooting form without having a stable position you, you'll never make a 
uh, you know, a, a shoot a tight group or make a really precise shot in the field, you've got to get the tremor out of your crosshairs. And the only way you can do that is by really learning to use, of course, we're talking in the field now, really learning to use your body and the natural terrain features around you that are offered, whether that's a stump or a flat spot on a ledge where you can get prone with a bipod or whatever. You've got to find a way to get as steady as possible. Then, of course, you got to also be so well, um, how shall I put this? you got to indoctrinate your muscle memory and that puppy part of your brain that starts driving when things get really exciting uh, so thoroughly that the fundamentals as far as breathing and squeezing the trigger just occur naturally. You don't have to think about them. And then, oh man, a third thing, you know, just practice again. The three all combine and and kind of interweave with each other. But I think it's important to accept up front that it is more difficult. And once you know that, it's okay to have the occasional errant shot while you're practicing. You can learn from those things. You can take a step back look at what happened, analyze it, and then create a process going forward that will help you um, try and prevent that from happening again. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, i got to throw something out here, too. I have gone to using um, a little different support system for shooting in the field than I had when I was Young and just growing up with a pre-64 Model 70 Winchester, I was pretty deadly with that thing out to about a quarter mile. You know, let's call it 450 yards with a non-dial-up scope. But past that, you know, if I had to take a shot on an animal somebody'd wounded and try and help them put it down, I was fishing, right? You know, <laughs> try and cast a little further each time and get the job done. Now, what with really good range finders, and very good, accurate rifles that are light enough to pack up mountains, and dial-up scopes that help you compensate for your point of impact exactly, and really aerodynamic, accurate projectiles that carry enough energy and velocity way out there to be thoroughly effective and ethical on impact. Man, we don't have many excuses. So I've gone to using an ultralight uh, system ideally obviously for long shots in the field which is where the precision is called for right well it's called anything past 350 400 yards i go to a lightweight bipod and if i have time a rear bag underneath the toe of my stock and there are a few different bipods out there that fit the bill the one that i've had the best luck with and used from south africa to Alaska is made by Spartan Precision. They make a few different ones, but they're, well, they have a few cool advantages. They range from about four and a half ounces up to about six ounces. They have a quick deta uh, quick detach uh, system that's kind of a male-female arrangement that's held together with rare earth magnets. So it's strong, and yet you can snap it in place or yank it off in a half second. So when you're snaking your way through alders, stalking a moose, or through oak brush, stalking elk or whatever, it's not hanging up. You stick it in your pocket and forget about it. 
And then if you suddenly pop out on the side of a canyon and need it badly, you don't have to dig it out of your pack and screw it on and hope that the animal's still there. You just snap that thing in place, drop prone, and you're good to go. Excuse me, frog in my throat this morning. So with that bipod up front and a, you know, a soft, ultra-lightweight rear bag under the toe of my stock, I can get just as steady on the side of a mountain as I can off of a shooting bench or a shooting mat prone back home at the range. makes a big difference. So that's the really long-winded way to answer your question of how to develop proficiency with a lightweight precision rifle. There's one other thing. If you haven't done this already, see if you can find a little local regional shooting group that holds PRS-type matches. These are, you know, it stands for Precision Rifle Series, but I like to think of it as practical rifle shooting, where most it's, it's a series of stages, usually 10-shot stages, against a time, it's 90 seconds to 2 minutes, where you have to shoot at targets at various distances, often quite far out there, sometimes in excess of a 1,000 yards, from multiple improvised positions. So it takes a very good shooter to actually finish a stage and get all of the shots off, let alone hit all the targets. But what it's done for me is it's really helped me to look at the land, whatever you know the stage designers put there, whether it's a gnarly old stump or a pile of rocks or tires or whatever, and quickly analyze how best to get steady and after shooting a few of these matches you'll find that you dive into position and get really stable in a matter of a second or two where before you fumbled around and it might take you 10 15 20 seconds to get your crosshairs stable and it's really really helped me with that teaches you to think on your feet to um, dial under pressure You know, it basically, it forces you to start retaining and implementing all of the correct fundamentals of shooting difficult targets under pressure. Well worth getting into just for that aspect. It'll help you make shots at the critical time in the field. Yeah. And there's a a ton in there I'd love to follow up on and hit on, Joseph. And some of it honestly aligned with some of the questions I wanted to chat with you about anyway. Um, I did want to talk about positional shooting in the field and support and things like that. And Steve and I have actually both used that, uh, that Spartan bipod and, uh, recommend that as well. I mean, we both, uh, used it in Alaska last year and have used it on other hunts and it's great when it comes to, you know, one thing I'm always feel like I'm still dialing, let's call it that like prone, even prone in the field off that bipod, uh, as you said, with some sort of rear support is great. That middle ground, that kind of kneeling slash sitting position when that's required, um, you know, I've tried a few different things there in, in terms of standing up our, our pack system, which has a solid frame that can be really good under the fore end. Um, I have used um, trekking poles to basically form shooting sticks. Um, I've done that both with in an improvised way, let's call it. And then there's also, um, a connection that it allows you to, to have that more stable, um, from wiser precision. It's basically a, a connection for trekking poles that turn them into shooting sticks. Obviously you have 
trigger sticks from Primos and things like that. When it comes to that middle position, sitting versus kneeling, what are some things to think through there, both in terms of maybe what's your favorite support method for that, um, and then just kind of the mechanics of that um, sitting or kneeling position? Because that's it's a position that I don't know that, I mean, I was, to be honest with you, I was practicing with it last night, um, but I still feel like I'm improving in that method. And so I'd just love to hear some feedback on that type of positional shooting. Sure. Well, like you, I, I'm reading between the lines here, but I think uh, most shooters, including myself, that's their least favorite uh, type of position to be forced to use, right? And Various things can make it so that you can't drop prone. You may not have time. You may have too much terrain. It's too steep or uh, giant rocks or grass, you know, brush so high that if you get below uh, kneeling or sitting, you can't even see the animal. So you're forced to use that. So a few things personally. I don't take long shots from those positions. I'll either pass the shot or better yet, I just find something a different position where I can get really stable. By long, I mean anything, certainly anything past 300 yards, and really my preference is nothing past about 200 yards because it just is nearly impossible to get really stable unless you have a lot of time. Now, if you have a lot of time, there are some things you can do. There are some bipods with interchangeable leg systems, or you can use... So let me back up and, and follow up on that. You can replace your standard height legs for shooting prone with a long set of legs that enables you to shoot from a sitting position. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry, guys. I got started uh, in that system with um, a bipod made right here in Utah. Well, my old place in Utah called the uh, Mod Evo, Modular Evolutions. It had some issues. It was a good bipod, a little bit heavy. But uh, since, I've been using uh, interchangeable legs on the Spartan system. Their latest set, uh, latest bipod, the Pro Hunt and the, what is it, the Javelin Light, I think. Uh, you can just screw the legs out very quickly and put long ones in. And an extra set of legs is very lightweight. They, they're ounces because they're carbon fiber, right? That takes time, though. Uh, you can also, like you mentioned, you can make cross sticks out of your trekking poles or whatever. Use a backpack stood on its end. A lot of these things can help you do it, but they all do require time. I'd say my favorite trick, if I can use that, is to um, try and get some kind of a rear rest. Let's say you have a spotting scope up front that you've turned sideways and you're resting the fore end of your rifle over so that you can get above the brush and your kneeling height. If you've got a trekking pole you can grab, or better yet, a couple of them you can grab, cross them in your left hand, squeeze them together, and get them under the toe of your stock, you can get pretty darn stable pretty um, pretty quickly. It's still not going to be super fast. If you got more time and you have the interchangeable legs, swap those legs out on your bipod for longer ones, and then... Use something under the back. I've um, often pulled my backpack around on my front and hugged it. And whether you're in a kneeling position, which I like to take two knees, 
assuming I have some kind of a front rest, two knees on the ground, hug the pack with my left hand up tight, like almost under my chin, and jam the toe of the stock down into the top of that pack. This is a trick I learned from PRS shooters. And with the bottom of your pack resting across your th- you know, on top of your thighs, which have connection to the ground through your knees, and the toe of your stock jammed down on the top of your pack, you now have at least a semblance of a front and rear uh, contact points is really helpful. But, you know, it's it's one of those things. Usually when you have to shoot sitting or or kneeling, the situation is fluid and you don't have a ton of time. So you have to learn to adapt and sometimes just pass on those shots. Ideally, if, if there's time and it's a long shot, let's say past 300 yards, you can look around and do something. Whether you have to belly crawl 50 yards to a little knob or rock or something, you can lay over and get real steady. But uh, that's a hard one to answer. I don't really have a good uh, solution for that. Just a few little tricks I've picked up. Oh, that's helpful for sure. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's it's not an easy position. Like I said, I was just practicing it last night, and I was actually you know shooting some steel uh, at four hundred, and hitting the big ones was easy. But you try to get down to those vital size steel plates from a kneeling position, um, and it's it's tough, man. It's uh, it's it's an interesting position to put yourself in. It it brings you back to everything, right? Like you really realize that breath matters and all of that, but it's, it's good to practice it. And it's good to realize, um, what is reality? Because it's, it's easy to talk about long range shots when conditions are perfect, but that's what is helpful is to practice when things aren't perfect, right? So to practice in some wind, to practice in different shooting positions and all that's really going to show you what your true effectiveness is. And even then that's on a range without, your heart racing and a elk in your scope. So, uh, but yeah, no, that's fun. Absolutely. You mentioned your heart racing. There's one little trick you can do to help minimize that. Funny enough, your, your heartbeat doesn't transfer into the ground and, and cause your body to pulse through your chest nearly as, as much as it does through your abdomen. So if you can throw something under your chest, when you go prone, and that just lifts your torso slightly off the ground, gets the contact between your stomach and the ground uh, minimized, it'll help you. I use um, the Badlands Binal case, right? And I use a really nice pair of binoculars with uh, a laser rangefinder, and so I'm pretty protective of them. But that case is robust enough that even in gravel or sharp rocks, whatever, I can just lay right on that and it lifts my chest a couple inches and gets my abdomen off the ground so that the heartbeat minimizes. That's one little trick that you can just employ without even having to to do it, right? It's already hanging there when you dive into a prone position, so it'll help you a little bit. As far as shooting, <laughs> uh, let me just follow up this this train of thought a little bit. Down at the FTW Shooting Ranch, which is a You guys probably are familiar with it. Maybe you've attended classes there, but it's one of the best practical shooting schools in the nation. S-A-A-M, the SAM Shooting School, a school of advanced marksmanship basically is what that stands for. They teach 
hunting field position type accuracy. And there was a time I was down there about three, four years ago where they had vital size, nine inch steel plates hung out to about a thousand yards. And they said, all right, we're going to shoot from standing positions. We're going to show you some stuff that's going to get you reliably hitting these plates out there further than you ever have before. And I thought standing, holy smokes. I mean, 300 yards is going to be hard. They put a bipod, uh, sorry, a three-legged tripod up underneath the end of my rifle and another three-legged tripod underneath the toe of my stock. So if you're using this, obviously you got to have a buddy or something that's packing shooting sticks as well as you. I could reliably hit those nine-inch plates to 700 yards. I was shocked. Now, I was shooting a really accurate heavyweight rifle. It's a little harder with a mountain weight rifle, but still... That's kind of a system. If you got totally high grass or the terrain is just such that you cannot work around it any other way, if you've got a pair of three-legged shooting sticks or tripods from your spotting scope or whatever, and you can get one under your forehand, one under your stock at the back, you can get surprisingly steady. Steve, um, weigh in on, you know, I don't even recall. I know you were one of the topics you were, you and I were chatting about a couple weeks ago was bullet choices and things like that. And that's when Joseph's name came up, but, um, whether it's that one specifically or anything else you got, I'm sure with you getting ready to take off on your sheep hunt, you might have some questions about that. It was kind of a last minute deal, but what's on your mind, uh, in terms of questions for Joseph? Um, I think my first one was, I mean, we got this Mark and I got an elk hunt here in Idaho. It'd be my first rifle elk hunt really ever uh going after bulls have been just bow hunting since i was 18 so i was just looking for good six five bullet choices for elk out of that prc Hmm. okay so you are that's a, a good question and it's not a really easy one to answer because this is just me speaking right this is the gospel of elk hunting according to von benedict but in my opinion, the six fives, all of them, are on the lower cusp of what is um, adequate for elk. Okay, so bullet choice when you're shooting a six five is much more critical than when you're shooting, let's say, a thirty caliber Magnum or something. There are a couple of things that are critically important. Uh, you need. Let me back up here first. Congratulations on heading into the mountains for elk with a rifle. You're probably going to find that it's a lot easier with your than with your bow, but it's a totally different experience too. I love bow hunting elk, but I love rifle hunting for elk too. And the seasons will be different unless you've you know got one of those rare rut hunts with a rifle. It's a different atmosphere and a different sort of game. I, I love it, both of them, but. Back to your bullet choice. There are a lot of guys, especially those that are shooting the super accurate smaller cartridges, such as the 6.5 Creedmoor, 6.5 PRC, and so forth, that talk about uh, shot placement. And they'll just say, look, you know, I know I'm not using a great big Magnum cartridge. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to wait for the right shot, and I'll put it through both lungs, and he'll die just fine. Well, yeah, that's accurate if they ever get that shot presentation as i'm sure you know from your years of hunting elk with a bow they don't usually 
cooperate and present you with exactly what you want. You have to work for that. And with a bow, you do have to wait for that. You can't take a quartering two shot through that big shoulder knuckle with a bow. If you have the right cartridge and the right bullet, you can and should. It's one of my favorite shot presentations for elk, but it's challenging for projectiles. So the first thing I would say to you is don't fall into that um, category of shooters who just kind of shrug off good bullet choice and say, I'm going to use the thing that's most accurate in my rifle because after all, bullet placement is everything. I'll just wait for the right shot. You'll probably have to pass a shot opportunity or two or three were you to kill the bull, maybe a really good bull, if you have that bullet. Or worse, like many hunters, you're not going to have the mental fortitude at the moment of truth to pass on that shot, and you'll try it. I'm not saying you will. You're a pretty astute fella, but uh, a lot of hunters will say, you know, no, I'm not going to be tempted. I'm going to wait for the broadside shot and well, that's hard to do when you got a 210-inch mule deer staring you in the face from 40 yards and your crosshairs are hovering on his shoulder, right? Most guys are going to squeeze the trigger. Same thing with the big bull. If you have the right bullet, that's no problem. You're going to kill him just fine. So bullet choice, especially with the 6.5s, is critically important. To me, accuracy is very, very important, but it comes second to penetrating ability. On when I'm talking elk, right? Other species, there's some differences. But with elk, my criteria is this. I got to be able to shoot through the shoulder knuckle of a bull that's quartering to me relatively steeply and still get close to 30 inches of penetration. And there are a lot of bullets that absolutely will not do that. The burgers. Most any cup and core bullet that's not bonded they just can't, right? They come apart on impact with that bone. They lose a lot of weight, fragmenting off the front end. Even if there's something of a shank left, it's going to be too small to drive really deeply. Now, um, the reason this is a critical criteria for me is that that's so frequently the shot presentation that you're offered when you're hunting elk in thick timber. Now, if you're shooting across a canyon and you have a little bit of time on a bull that's working a harem or even just feeding, you know, late season, putting on some pounds or whatever, you can wait for that broadside shot, and you should. But if you stand a bull up out of his bed in the timber, or if you call one out of a harem of cows in thick timber, he's going to come in straight on and then angle just a bit before he gets to you, most likely. You know this from your bow hunting years. And stop and look. <clears throat> Excuse me. If he, if you're fortunate, he'll stop in a little opening and you can put your crosshairs on his shoulder. When he turns to go, there's a very good chance he's going to go fast. And you won't have time to slip a shot right behind his shoulder for a perfect broadside shot. So you got to be able to take that quarter two shot. Now, I pounded that drum Enough, I think. Let's talk about some bullets that are capable of that. Pick something that's bonded and ideally something that's designed for very, very deep penetration. There are bonded bullets such as Nosler's, Nosler's AccuBond 
and um, Hornady's Interbond bullets, Swift's Sirocco 2 bullets. All of these are great bullets that will probably give oh, 16 to 20 inches of penetration. They're much better than a cup and core bullet that's not bonded, that's going to lose a ton of weight when it hits that bone. But they're still not good enough. So consider this. Last fall I measured, I had an opportunity on a, an elk just like we're talking about. Nice 6x6 six six in Colorado, between 50 and 70 yards with a 6.5 PRC. And took that shot, broke that massive bone, and drove 32 inches, if I remember the measurement right, back through his vitals. And we recovered that bullet wedged between his last ribs on the offside. I was using a Barnes 127 grain LRX bullet. We measured the distance of each, how shall I call it, um, element of that elk's body, his construction. Hit the bone right above the shoulder knuckle. So it's like that wrist-sized, nearly solid bone at the bottom of the shoulder blade where it attaches to the knuckle. Completely removed a two-inch section of it. Nothing but matchsticks. Then there was eight or nine inches of nothing but shoulder muscle. Now, this stuff is very, very dense. It's much denser than lung tissue. It's really heavy muscle. So by the time it exited the shoulder muscle and started through the rib cage, that bullet had already penetrated 12 to 14 inches of very uh, challenging material. Then it went through a rib, took out a two and a half inch section of rib into the thoracic cavity and went another th- uh, 20 inches through vitals, caught both lungs. We uh, che- we did an f- informal autopsy, either bone fragments or a piece of that bullet, a little piece of the front of it, got to the heart and compromised the plumbing on top of the heart. That bull went just a few steps and tipped over. If I'd had a bullet that wasn't designed for deep, deep penetration and bone-breaking capability and straight tracking after it hits bone, I would have had issues trying to shoot that elk with the, the shot opportunity he gave me. I shot between a pair of aspen trees that were about 10, 12 inches wide. All I could see was his shoulder and one antler. That one antler I could see had six points. That was good enough. And uh, it turned out perfect. If I'd been shooting a soft bullet, I'd have had trouble. I'd have been tracking a wounded elk for a long time. Because if that soft bullet had even gotten to his thoracic cavity, almost certainly it wouldn't have got through both lungs. I'd had a single lunged animal or a simple shoulder shot animal. What's the the flip side when you take that? solid bullet and and just shoot it through the lungs like you know it is that perfect broadside shot how how does a bullet perform in that scenario they perform wonderfully so you remember these are made to expand to about double the original diameter without losing much weight and to maintain a certain amount of shank behind that mushroomed front end that provides basically a pushing mechanism, think back to your physics classes, that will drive that bigger front mushroom shape up front through. So if you shoot something through just a square shot through the lungs with a controlled expansion bullet, you may not get, you should not get 
a bunch of little fragments coming off the front end and spiraling off your main wound channel into the lungs, but you're still going to get a big hole pushed all the way through and ideally out the other side. I like blood trails and exit holes bleed exponentially more than entrance holes because they're bigger. Plus all that material that they've just torn through has been, oh, I don't know. You can kind of think of it as being drug with that bullet or or pushed through to that direction. So all of those ruptured capillaries and veins and so forth are spewing blood in the direction of the exit hole. So you get a much better tracking um, opportunity should you need it. Now, there are a bunch of different bullets that offer some different levels of performance. For instance, if you want fragments spiraling off that bullet, uh, the projectile on impact, choose a nozzle or partition. They're known to perform up front like a soft cup and core bullet. But once that front core has been completely shredded off, which they do at very close range impact, the rear core with that, you know, the broader diameter caused by that folded back jacket from up front pushes on through and they're known for very good penetration. Barnes bullets are very, very good. All of them. Hornady's GMX line is another Excellent controlled expansion bullet that will penetrate very deep, maintain almost all of its weight. And then, oh gosh, Swift's A-frame is good. They're not very highly aerodynamic, but uh, such a tough bullet. And maybe the most uh, modern of the type is Federal's Terminal Ascent Bullet. It's designed for superb accuracy. The engineers tell me that they're shooting... 0.6-inch 10-shot groups in their underground tunnels. So there's obviously, this is out of a rifle and a machine rest, and without any environmentals or human errors influencing the outcome. But still, 10-shots, 6-tenth-inch groups are pretty impressive. They have a high BC. The rear half of the bullet is solid copper, so you can't destroy it. And the front half is... Uh, soft lead bonded to the jacket. So you're going to get a big frontal area with a good shank to drive them deep, coupled with very good aerodynamics, high BC bullets, right? And um, excellent accuracy. It's a really, really good bullet. Now, I'm rambling here a little bit, but just to um, wrap up this, what should you know a 6.5 PRC shooter use on elk? I'd use anything of um, the controlled expansion heavier type bullets. The one I used was 127 grain Barnes LRX, like I mentioned. And it might be worth calling Barnes because they've introduced a line of custom ammo. And I'm sure they would be happy to hook you up with some cartridges loaded specifically for your rifle. And they'll be accurate. They shoot fantastic. That's a really good load. Or you can hand load. You know, Partition or a Hornady GMX, any of the Barnes bullets or that Federal Terminal Ascent. There's one other that Hornady designed for shooting moose in Scandinavia. It's really marketed to the European guys. It's a 140 grain GMX with a flat base and a, f- a semi flat protected tip. It's a Spitzer type bullet, but it doesn't have that real long, sleek polymer type tip that. Uh, most of today's bullets have. It's 140 grains, and I think 
if I was to go moose hunting for Alaska moose or whatever with a six five caliber, that would hands down be my choice because it's really designed for deep penetration. However, it's not aerodynamic, so if you want to shoot past 300 yards, it's not your best bullet. But just throwing it out there, it's a really kind of unusual for today's designs, but it takes that 6.5 and allows it to punch in a much heavier weight class. Just for fun, let's, let's like, why don't you play devil's advocate and argue why, to me, the, the whole, like from that bow hunting mentality, the whole solid bullet penetration just makes a lot of sense why why shoot a burger or you know the, the type of bullet that's that's more explosive yeah well a lot of guys do it because of easy accuracy uh personally i think that would be uh the primary reason i don't have any data to support that but when you give a guy ammo with uh a burger VLD hunting or a hybrid hunter, or any of these other really great bullets, you know, best used in my opinion for deer size game, but great bullets or a Hornady ELDX or what a lot of these guys are shooting is the ELD match, which has a very thin jacket, superbly accurate bullet. They expand violently on impact, really good for some of the smaller light thin skinned game. But elk's a different creature. You know, they're big and tough. They have a lot of body weight and a lot of um, resolve. You know, they resist going down. Those guys, if you give them a load that the first time they go out, they're shooting little bug hole groups, and they can on demand sit down and show their buddy that they can shoot a half-inch group with their new custom rifle, that's empowering. That's really confidence building and most of the guys that are shooting this type of bullet are wanting extended range capability and if you've got a load that will easily on demand shoot a half inch group at 100 yards you know that if you do your part that bullet will shoot a four inch group at 800 yards now assuming you get all your uh, atmospherics correct and you read the wind correctly and so forth you actually can at least theoretically shoot at something at 800 yards with some semblance of an ethical approach because you have the rifle and load combination to place your shot precisely at that distance. I don't um, subscribe to that school of thought. I have shot some game a long way out there. I do a lot of long range competitive shooting and partly just out of journalistic integrity, I have stepped into that world to try and learn about it so I can write about it intelligently uh, with some success. But uh, to me, 600 yards is still a very, very long shot on an animal. I do think it's the new 400 yards. You look at 40 years ago, a rifleman that could cleanly kill a deer every time at 400 yards was some shakes, right? That was a, a pretty big deal. Today, I think 600 yards is now that threshold. A lot of really good guys can do that, really good shooters. But to do it at 800, that's a different story. Or even further, right? 1,000, 1,100. So, I, again, that's the long-winded way of answering. But pure 
accuracy. It's harder to get a tough controlled expansion bullet to shoot as accurately because there's more going on inside that bullet. It's not as simple and it can't be made on machines that make match bullets for competitive shooters, right? Yeah, I think one thing that for some guys too, as you said, Joseph, who are just only looking at numbers, uh, you know, a lot of the solids in those uh, types of bullets we discussed for that performance on elk that you were describing, they're going to have a lower BC uh, or 10-2. And so it's really easy to just to crunch numbers. Like, I, And I've been there myself. You just pull up a ballistics calculator. You start looking at downrange, uh, both trajectory, wind drift, retained energy, velocity, and all that. And it's easy to look at a, a ballistics uh, calculator and say, well, this bullet is better because at 600 yards or at 800 yards, it has you know, more retained velocity, therefore higher energy, less wind drift, etc. But that's just not, that's not all the story. Like that, that number's in front of you and it's data and it's easy to just get caught in that as a trap. But you have to begin to ask yourself, what are you sacrificing to get there? And some of that may be what you were describing, Joseph, of not getting the, the terminal performance that you need, particularly when you don't have the ideal shot opportunity. Yeah, it's, it's a, easy trap to fall into Uh, for guys that really want to make those longer shots getting the bullet in the sweet spot is of course their primary goal but gosh it's so important to just remember that if your bullet isn't equipped to handle every shot presentation that you get offered you're crippling yourself yeah it's great to pick a bullet that's very capable at 600 yards or even further but if that bullet then is incapable or very problematic at 40 yards, that's a big problem for elk hunting because lots of times you get a very close shot. It's just Murphy's Law, you know. You work for a long shot, you're going to get a close shot. There's one other trap that I think these Accuracy First guys fall into, not talking about the brand. There's a great brand of products called Accuracy First, but that put accuracy above every other bullet performance characteristic uh and that's guys will say you know what i'm shooting a a big 30 caliber magnum with a 220 grain bullet it doesn't matter if it comes apart there's such a big bullet there that it's going to do the job just fine i can shoot an elk anywhere i want it's going to kill it i used to actually think there was something to that i figured if you threw 220 grains of 30 caliber lead at an elk Pretty much from any angle, you probably still at least can get a quarter of that into the vitals, right? Uh, There's a story I've told a couple times on my podcast that um, taught me otherwise. I was in Mexico as a journalist in a, a camp that was bringing in gigantic mule deer. Every evening, the guides would roll in and one to three of them with their client would have a 200 plus inch buck in the back of the truck just mind-boggling showed me a totally different world of mule deer anyway there was a father and son team there clients the father shot a big beautiful wide buck the son was coming into about the fifth day of the hunt they rolled out mid-afternoon to go hunting and 40 minutes later they were back i'd already finished up whatever I was doing and was just chilling there in camp. And uh, so I walked out to help them 
unload and check out what they'd got. And they had a really nice, heavy horn, non-typical mule deer in the back of the truck. I kind of laughed. I mean, still mid-afternoon, right? I said, what happened? And they said, well, we're just driving out to our hunting area. And this buck stood up 40 yards off the road. And uh, he took the rifle and shot him broadside. And the buck, oh, they didn't tell me what the buck did at that point. I just said, shot him. And I said, 40 yards. Because I knew the kid was shooting a 300 Ultra Mag with 220 grain Burger VLD hunting bullets. And I thought, geez, that close up. That buck must have dropped like a sack of potatoes, right? So I asked, what'd the buck do? And they said, oh, he kind of humped up, ran about 15 yards and tipped over. I thought, well, that could have been anything from a 243 up. That's kind of what mule deer do, right? So uh, I asked if I could help do, you know, help fill dress him and do kind of an informal autopsy. Well, these guys knew me by then and they knew that I'm kind of a, uh, you know, a, a bullet geek. And so he said, sure. And we started taking this animal apart. The bullet had hit that 220 grain burger had hit this buck in the crease behind the shoulder. Perfect broadside shot. We got inside. I removed the lungs. There was nothing left but froth and a couple of things that looked like bloody scrambled eggs, right? I mean, it was pulverized. And then I started, we had a hose there. It was an old ranch house, uh, uh, headquarters, no house left there, but there was still some amenities. There was a hose with a faucet. We started rinsing out his vital cavity inside. I wanted to try and find sign of what that bullet had done. Now, a big mule deer inside his thoracic cavity is only nine to 12 inches across, right? It's not that big. This bullet had gone through hide. I think it did hit a rib. So let's call it, you know, an inch worth of hide muscle and a little bit of bone. There was not a single scratch on the surface, the opposite side surface of the vital cavity. You know, there's that kind of silvery white inner membrane in their vital cavity. And I expected to find it freckled with holes from fragments of that big bullet. Not a thing. Not a piece of the shank. Not the tiniest scuff on that opposite side. So after ending the thoracic cavity... That 220 grain bullet more or less vaporized into that lung tissue, which is like foam, right? It's very thin material. It's not hard to penetrate. And I realized that up close, going super fast, even a very heavy bullet can pretty well grenade into nothing. That bullet, heavy as it was, certainly would not have gotten through an elk's shoulder and into his vital cavity. It was a pretty big eye-opener for me hmm. yeah I've, I've don't have any uh first-hand experience but i've certainly heard that phenomenon right of those explosive softer bullets especially with shorter ranges really high speeds as you said it's almost like it's almost like they can vaporize i mean it's almost really shocking um from some of the guys it i've is. talked to with their experiences yeah. like where did that thing go <laughs> yep yeah well we we chatted about the Elk hunt. I mean, let me go ahead and throw out. I just would be curious uh, to have you. Um, I don't want to use the word critique, but maybe inform me uh, on my plans, Joseph. We um, this actually goes back to when we had you on the podcast previously years ago and, and chat about cartridge selection. I've primarily been shooting the thirty out six for my primary hunting rifle, um, and I for this elk hunts. 
uh, I started hand loading um, and I'm looking at shooting a hammer bullet, which is a, a monolithic, um, you know, solid copper. Uh, have sure. excellent accuracy with it out of my rifle. Um, it essentially, I'm, I was actually, like I said, I was shooting last night. Um, I was getting speeds last night. It's 168 grain monolithic running out of my 30-06 and my rifle um, at about 2940, um, which is uh, pretty quick. It, it still is amazing to me of like, you take an old cartridge like the 30-06, but then you look at modern power powders and modern projectiles and what you can actually do with it. But with that type of load, what what would you give me feedback on? Whether that's a caution or, you know, think through this, is that a solid choice? Because that is my plan. Um, and it's, like I said, out of my rifle, it's shooting fantastic. And I have a lot of confidence in, um, you know, the accuracy of it. But from a terminal perspective, uh, what would you have me think through? You know, I think you are spot on with that load combination. I haven't used the hammer bullets personally, but I've heard good things about them. Being a monometal bullet, it will penetrate. You've got enough weight there. For a 30 out 6 I like a bullet of 165 grains to 180 grains, so you're right there in the sweet spot. I think you are money, man. I don't think I would hesitate to take a shot on an elk from any angle with that, except going straight away. Uh, you know, a Texas heart shot, or even if you had to rake one up through the hip, I wouldn't do that unless you've already got a bullet in that animal. And then, of course, you know, it's on. Put any shot into them yeah. anywhere you can to try and slow them down. But, uh, yeah, I I think you've made an excellent choice, and clearly you're getting top performance out of the thirty out 6 That's a grand old cartridge. It It isn't what some of the modern cartridges are in certain ways, but as you say, if you pick the right projectile hand load for it, you can close that gap significantly. What's the BC on that 168 grain hammer that you're using? Um, that's a great question. I was afraid you were going to ask me that. I, wanna, I don't want to misquote it, so let me take a quick peek because <laughs> I do have it written down. <laughs> yeah, no worries. notes here. I mean, it's, it's obviously not going to be as high as this, some of the other choices, but uh, the G7 is 0.227. Okay. So your G1, which more people are familiar with, is going to be a little more than twice, no, a little less than twice. It'd be about 450. That's not bad, especially with the velocities you're getting. You'll be just fine with that bullet. How far out have you shot it? Uh, Like last night, I was shooting at 400. Um, I've done most of, uh, I've basically been working with low development with it over the past two months, really, and I've done a lot at one and two in groups and... Um, you know, trying different powders and obviously dialing my charge weight. But um, last night I was shooting, you know, MOA or better still at 400. I mean, to me, the accuracy is uh, I'm the weak link in it. Let me put it that way, because I'm not uh, I'm not going to say I'm the best shooter, but it's it's phenomenally accurate when I do my part. Very cool. Do you mind me asking what propellant you ended up using with that bullet? Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, I'm running. um 56 grains of H4350. Okay, cool. Yeah. Very good. Well, I look forward to hearing how it performs for you. I bet you'd be just fine out to five, 600 yards with that load on, on elk. And more importantly, you're, you're prepared for any shot opportunity that presents from, you know, spitting distance out. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I kind of want to ask that question, not in relation to this load, but just to hit it from a high level. You mentioned five to six, and obviously I've been crunching numbers in, in terms of looking at downrange energy for that load specifically. And as you said, it's it, it basically depended on the exact elevation I'd be. It, it puts me right in that ballpark of five to 600 yards, um, you know, with that 1,500 pounds um, number, which a lot of people throw around for elk. Um, you know, if I'm, say, hunting at 5,000 feet in elevation, uh, it comes out to, I think, 1,500 pounds gets me to 570, I think, 570 yards. Sure. Um, do you... Do you ascribe to that? I don't know that we talked about that in the first episode we might have, but I've seen that number thrown out a lot for elk, you know, that 1,500-pound number on kinetic energy. What are your thoughts on that as a a rule of thumb, let's call it? (laughs) Well, now you've opened a can of worms. Uh, (laughs) I know it is. That's why I'm curious to see your opinion because there's a lot of thoughts out there. Sure. So uh, I'm... I want to try and simplify this more important to me than impact energy numbers as typically calculated on the kinetic formula using foot pounds, right? Is impact velocity. Because if a bullet is going too slow to open up, you're just going to punch a knitting needle hole through it, no matter how many foot pounds it's carrying. And that means you're taking an unethical shot. Uh, man, I shot a, an Audad ram. We hunted five days hard. It was the second to last day of our hunt, and I shot an Audad ram with a prototype bullet at 561 yards several years back out of a 30-06. Hit him well. And Audad, Barbary sheep, you know, they're known for being tough, kind of like Elkar. He took off across the mountain, and he'd pause, and I'd shoot him again. I hit him seven out of eight shots before he quit. And one of those was an end-to-end shot. Oh, I felt bad. I mean, this ram was full of holes. When we did, you know, our, what I always do, an informal autopsy, those bullets were not expanding. And we actually recovered the one that I shot lengthwise into that ram. And it was unexpanded entirely. I had thought I was still within the velocity expansion window, but I wasn't. So you got to find out what that hammer bullet's low-end window is. You know, they'll always give a, if you if you call in, sometimes you have to dig a little bit. You can usually find what they term as your velocity expansion window, where it, a bullet will come apart completely at the high end. I have talked to Steve from Hammer about that, and he essentially has tested that bullet and gets fully reliable expansion down to 1800 feet per second. And it, you know, he said it very well, maybe lower, but that's basically the minimum um, that they test to and verify that expansion. That would be 18, which, um, you know, exceeds that 1500 um, energy number by about another hundred or 150 yards, really, if, if that's the number you want to use. But um, yeah, that is a piece of the puzzle I'd love to hear about from your perspective. Yeah, perfect. So you're in good shape there. Yeah, uh, that 1800 feet per second sounds exactly right. I like what Steve told you about, uh, you know, probably lower, but this is where we're confident saying it will expand. So what I do, the first thing I look at is how far is my maximum expansion range? I've got a really good load for a 375 H&H using a Hornady 150, uh, 250 grain GMX bullet. 
that I've shot on steel to 1,000 yards really effectively, but I max out at 450 yards because that's when that bullet drops below its expansion window. So you're on the right track. As far as energy, man, I we use foot-pounds of kinetic energy because it's kind of the standard, right? But it's got some glaring issues. It's very easily manipulated using velocity. The formula incorporates velocity and mass, but it's biased toward velocity. So, for instance, you can take a 22-250 with a 40-grain bullet going 4,000 feet per second, and it whips up a tremendous amount of energy, and yet it's not in any way, shape, or form adequate for um, elk, right, as an all-around bullet. On the flip side, uh, using that formula, bullet weight is kind of uh, minimized. You can use some other formulas. Uh, I'm sure you've done this in the past, but for listeners who haven't, look up uh, momentum calculations, which also use um, velocity and bullet mass, but it's in a formula that doesn't bias the result toward velocity. And I like that better. Another cool one that's just old, it's nearly 100 years old, is Taylor's knockout formula. John Taylor was an African uh, professional hunter and a serious ballistician that did a lot of work with various cartridges and projectiles nearly 100 years ago while shooting, oh, just scads of big game in Africa, including elephants and other dangerous game. He developed a formula that's commonly called the TKO formula, Taylor's Knockout Formula, and it incorporates velocity, bullet mass, and bullet diameter. And I really like that one as well. I don't want to dive into them too deeply right now, but back to your question on the 1,500 foot-pounds for elk thing. You know, I look at impact velocity, I look at bullet weight, I look at frontal diameter, which I've said many times is I think the least understood and the most widely disregarded element of terminal performance today. And then I look at energy, and I like to see as high energy published as possible, assuming the other elements are there. So for instance, if I see somebody shooting a 40 grain bullet, but they're, they're touting 3,200 foot pounds of energy, then I just write that energy off. I mean, that's a, uh, irrelevant at that point. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm throwing out a theoretical and, uh, I am not advocating that I would put myself in this situation this is theoretical but let's say um with my numbers with that load i mentioned i would retain 1500 uh, foot pounds of energy at 600 yards but i would still exceed that minimum expansion velocity for that bullet of 1800 feet per second 1800 feet per second i would still exceed that at say 700 yards uh, those are rough numbers but generally what it would be i'm not saying i'm taking that shot at 700 yards but you would, again, in the right presentation from the animal, feel confident in the performance of that bullet then. It's 700 yards because it's exceeding the minimum expansion velocity, even though it doesn't carry 1,500 foot-pounds of energy. Again, shot selection being, call it broadside and ideal. Yes, that's correct. So several elements come into play. Obviously, if you're going to take a long shot, first be sure your rifle's capable. Sounds like it probably is. Make sure there's no wind. 
I don't care who you are, unless you're Carlos Hathcock shooting 700 yards in perceptible amounts of wind is a bad idea. Um, I mean, you know, if, if there's the lightest, faintest breeze, you can probably work through that. But if you've got a five to anything higher crosswind, especially if you have multiple vectors coming out of different cross canyons and stuff, you just got to pass that shot. But assuming there's no wind, accurate rifle, and you have a time to achieve a very stable shooting position. Yeah, if you're confident in that shot, I would be confident in the bullet. Yeah, and that that's my question because I have yeah, I have all kinds of questions about my competency at that point. I was just throwing out the theoretical about the data and performance of the bullet and how comfortable you felt about that at that distance. Sure, yep. But you know what? I love to hear that you have questions about your own um, capability because that tells me you're probably capable. You're the kind of guy that analyzes and questions and then polishes until your techniques are as good as possible. And you know, compared to somebody that like, I can make that shot. You're probably a lot more lethal than that guy, right? Um, there's one other, if I can just take the time, there's one other element of bullet performance at extended ranges that's widely misunderstood. And that is that as a bullet slows down, commonly, this doesn't apply to every hunting bullet type, but commonly they penetrate more deeply. And the simplest way to think of it is that when it impacts, that mushroom, the front end that expands, doesn't get as big. This is one thing. So there's less resistance to that bullet pushing through. And the other is that bullet's less likely to lose fragments, which uh, means it's retaining more weight. More weight means more momentum. More momentum means deeper driving capability. So I've done tests in ballistic gelatin and not just shooting them with reduced velocities at, you know, 30 feet like so many people do when they're testing. I've shot calibrated ordnance ballistic gelatin at 400 yards and at 40 yards and compared to results. And most hunting bullets penetrate, oh, geez, 10 to 30 percent more deeply at 400 yards. Really interesting phenomenon because they've slowed down. Just think of it, though. Less resistance because the frontal end isn't so massive as a very close-range impact and more retained weight. So I have no doubt that that bullet, that hammer bullet at 600, 700 yards from your 30-06, will go through that elk from just about any angle. And as long as it expands and it's pushing a frontal diameter of, you know, like a quarter in diameter... Through that animal, it's going to die cleanly, ethically, quickly. Yeah, I've never thought about that phenomenon, but the reasons you, you gave for it make a lot of sense as to why it's, you know, moving slower at that further distance, but still would expand, or I'm sorry, still would penetrate further. I never thought about that. That's really interesting. It is. That's the sort of small arcane detail that just fills me with happiness. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> right there with you i love it well joseph this is uh this has been a fun conversation um appreciate you taking the time i i want to make sure you know i had mentioned to you prior to this recording that since we had last spoke you started your podcast and 
I had tuned into a few episodes recently, and I, I would generally say I thoroughly enjoy it. So make sure, uh, where can listeners find out about your podcast and go check that out? What's the name of it and things like that? Yeah, well, thank you. It's just called the Backcountry Hunting Podcast. You can find it on iTunes and Podbean and all those other common, um, you know, pl- uh, platforms for podcasts. I have a website. It's basic. Uh, it's just backcountryhuntingpodcast.net and a Facebook page. Best way to actually get a hold of me, because I like answering listeners' questions and so forth, is on my Instagram account, which is just at backcountryhuntingpodcast. And uh, yeah, love to have you follow along. Before we part ways, though, here, I heard about a, a mention of a sheep hunt. You guys have time to tell me what that's all about? Uh, yeah, I'm, I just completely random uh, going on. A, uh, I got the opportunity to do a cancellation doll sheep hunt, so I leave in two weeks, uh, head up into the Alaska range. Fantastic. Doll sheep is one of my uh, bucket list animals. That's such a cool opportunity, man. Congratulations. Any details on what you'll be doing? Uh, you know, all that, so it's kind of a cool story. One of, one of Mark and I's really good friends won this hunt at the hunt expo this year. Um, and then, so he was on the outfitters list and then they, uh, sent out an email to him just saying, Hey, we had somebody cancel. Um, we've got this opportunity and, and then it, it got forwarded to me and, and I talked to the outfitter and able to, to kind of book it, uh, and get even a better deal. Cause I'll be hunting with, with Tyler, my buddy. Um, and then all I know is that, uh, there's some the big sheep that are about 20 miles from the from the airstrip that he's been wanting to get people on, but nobody's willing to hike that far. And Tyler and I aren't aren't afraid to put some miles on. So apparently we're going to be doing some hiking and get in there and hopefully kill some big rams. And yeah, just super super excited about. It. It's all new to me. I've never, you know, I've been to Alaska for caribou, moose, and and Kodiak for deer, but uh, uh, this sheep and it's just going to be yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Right up my alley. Right like backpacking tough country tough weather hunting animals on steep rocky slopes i'm just yeah i I couldn't uh couldn't be more excited for this trip coming up and then obviously the my gun here i've um i've got my prc and that's what i'm planning on taking uh and i and i've got a a eldx shooting good but i've been contemplating making a last minute change here to that 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 barnes bolt was top of my list of something that i could do well with on the sheep hunt as well as take up uh, on the elk hunt when Mark comes out here to Idaho. Yeah, fantastic. That's going to be a wonderful adventure. I um, congratulate you and I envy you, but uh, man, that ELDX bullet will do really well on sheep. And if you just throwing out my two cents here, if you don't want to take the time to change right now, uh, that's as good as it gets for a sheep bullet, I think. On the other hand, if you really want to build experience and and focus on just one load for your six uh, five PRC, then you know that one twenty seven grain Barnes that you're talking about switching to would be a really good choice as well. Okay, what's do you know minimum opening velocity on that one twenty seven? The one twenty seven Barnes, I think, is about there with that hammer bullet. It's um. A comfortable 1800 feet per second i think it will open at 16 or even 1500 feet per second but to their credit you know most of the guys at barnes aren't going to tell you that just because they don't want you to push the limits too hard and have a bad experience you know but it's a uh, it's really engineered for 
extended range performance in a monometal bullet design. Never mind. I was gonna, I was gonna have, how does it handle the short shot? But obviously, you go back to your elk story and performs beautifully. Yep, they do. Now they'll lose a couple of pedals, which is fine. I mean, you just then have um, you know auxiliary projectiles spiraling off and creating their own wound channel, and the front end of that shank will still be jagged and large in diameter. So yeah, I, I love them. I don't have a single beef with them. Sweet. Well, I got to have pictures. So once you get that ram down and get packed out and, and sleep for about a week and eat a dozen cheeseburgers, send me a photo. Fair enough. I will do. <laughs> Wonderful. Joseph, thank you so much for the time. Uh, appreciate you joining us, guys. Uh, listening, be sure to go check out Joseph's podcast as well. Uh, and yeah, just thanks again, Joseph. It's a, I never want to take it for granted when we have somebody with a, a vast amount of experience and knowledge and um, real world experience who's willing to share it with us. So thank you. Hey, my pleasure, guys. It's, it's an honor to be on your show and I really enjoy visiting with you. Well, that is a wrap, guys. So much good information in that one. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't yet, do two things. One is hit that subscribe button so that you receive future episodes automatically. And two, share this episode with a friend that could benefit from this information. If you have anything for us, you can email us to podcast at exomountgear.com. Best of luck in the coming days and weeks as many of us are starting our hunts for this fall. And so looking forward to that. Be sure to let us know how it goes for you guys and good luck. Enjoy the hunt.